We are back with the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I have in the studio with me Representative Emily Kornheiser, who is a regular contributor to this show, and Representative Laura Sibelia. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Hello. <laughs> so before the break, uh, I had brought up the big word around ACT. Uh, 60 and education funding, which is, if you're just joining us, what we're talking about now. And I said income sensitivity, which we had yet to talk about. So Laura or Emily, will you give us a quick definition of income sensitivity and how that pertains to education funding? So for me, income sensitivity means that people's tax rate, essentially, the tax rate that is sort of voted on by the town and then pooled and redistributed by the state, the lived experience, the way people actually wind up paying those taxes is sensitized to people's income. So for myself, a family that is sort of just below the $100,000 mark, we have not paid our full taxes. I've, I don't think I've ever paid full property taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what that means sort of from is it's a method of progressive taxation, meaning that folks who are more able to pay are paying the full tax rate and that folks who are less able to pay are not paying the full tax rate. They're paying the full tax rate that they're able to pay. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty innovative way of doing it, especially in communities that sort of have this. um, And I think this is true for a lot of the towns that are sort of determined to be gold towns. Um, but I think it's true for a lot of other towns as well, that you have folks with an incredible capacity to pay mm-hmm. who might feel very comfortable voting for spending. And then you have folks with much less of a capacity to pay who might in some cases have inherited a farm mm-hmm. um, or whatever it is that their property might be valued at something, but they still don't necessarily have the capacity to pay on an annual basis. Right. That property rate. rich, but, but yes. cash poor, yes. as we sometimes say. Or just you know, someone who has a house and needs to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. So property, me- property medium yeah. and cash poor. So what I would add to this is that your local, so uh, your local school budget, um, the residential taxes all go to your local school budget. Your non-residential taxes have nothing to do with your local school budget. Oh, interesting. So in Brattleboro, uh, we have, when the school board makes a decision, uh, the taxes that the, that the residents pay are directly tied to that Uh, so wealthier residents will feel that more Um, poorer residents will be more insulated from those decisions but the businesses that we are right outside the window here um, the property taxes the education property taxes that they are paying have nothing to do with Brattleboro's budget they have to do with the all of the education spending um, around the state. So it's businesses and second homeowners. And essentially renters. And renters. And I, again, (laughs) shocking that second homeowners 
or I don't even want to call them second homeowners, yeah. non-residential homeowners, because it might be a fifth home, yeah. are paying the same tax rate as the tax rate that is passed on to renters from landlords. Mm-hmm. And I know there's more nuance there, and I see Laura's, there's more nuance face. Well, you know, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> and of course there is, but it's still, and then businesses, they seem just like there are three such different categories involving both capacity to pay, decision-making power, investment in the community, all of it. It's just shocking to me that all three are in the same tax category. I, I would like you to take your camera the next time I make the, there's more nuance to this face and take a picture. <laughs> okay. It's, that was oh, great. she's getting the camera ready. <laughs> I am. So, yeah, uh, Yes. So the there's also incomes. there's a lot of details here and I have to remember them all yep. so I can line yep. them up in bullet points face. You have that face too. <gasps> Did you say bullet, bullet Yeah, you have point? like a I'm going to come up with bullet points face. Too. I actually I think in bullet I points thought so. often. Yeah. So um, the so I think what you're saying is true. Um, and what is also true are our small businesses um, are not income sensitized. No. Mm, yeah. Good point. That's really hmm. serious. It is actually very serious. Mm-hmm. And so in a, in small towns in particular where you know these things you know people get freaked out uh, about a significant rise in the property taxes you know it's it's hard for it's re- this the complexity is real oh yeah yeah the complexity is always real it's real yeah so you know how do we <laughs> <laughs> she's gonna do it she's gonna take my picture so that's what I would say about income sensitivity. Okay. I think that um, we have um, we have said that we want to income sensitize the residents, and we've left our businesses, you know, out mm-hmm. there with the fifth home homeowner, <laughs> uh-huh. which you know is uh, that's a questionable policy for me. You know yeah. that there's not yeah. um, some sort of sensitivity there as well. One mm-hmm. thing that I noticed when I was knocking on doors around the income sensitivity is the people who would talk about their property taxes being too high were the people who from my, you know, not entirely informed did not, you know, look at their tax statement were the people who are probably paying their full property taxes. Um, and from sort of a legalistic perspective are hypothetically folks who can most are most able to afford it. And so one thing that I want to understand long-term is, is there that sort of like middle-class gap where we're sensitizing, where the sensitivity is starting too low? Or is it just that we sort of, you know, all need things to complain about and property taxes is something that people like to complain about? I hear what you're saying from the small business perspective, Mm -hmm. but for folks that are sort of out of the sensitivity range, I'm curious what that's like as an experience. So I would would say that... um, most likely to be able to afford or feels affordable, there's definitely some subjectivity. Absolutely. (laughs) That's what I want to understand. Yes. Well, I mean, I don't know that we can. Yeah. So two people with similar incomes and similar homes Mm -hmm. um, in similar situations may have very different ideas about what's affordable Mm -hmm. for them. Absolutely. And they might have very different financial burdens around healthcare costs, around student loan costs, all that stuff. Yes. But but I think what you're asking, Emily, just for the sake of the listeners out there is, is there some kind of benefits cliff that around education funding for people who are kind of in that income range where, you know, they have enough so they're not qualifying for sensitivity, but they don't necessarily bring in enough money that it's not hurting mm-hmm. to, to see those those taxes go up. Yeah. 
Good question for further research. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so I am curious. We've, we've been focusing on Act 60 and education spending, but of course we just had Act 46, <laughs> which did. <laughs> I'm wondering if this has changed anything or if, because one thing that's striking me right now, I'll back up a little bit, is something you said earlier, Laura, about um, what's under local control in the school budget and what isn't. And it strikes me a little bit, that maybe one thing we're struggling with here in in this state is we've got, um, and those who love local control, please don't hate me. Uh, We've got this kind of hybrid system where it's neither completely state run, but it's neither local run and the two aren't meeting in the middle. Um, Did Act 46 help that or not? Uh, I think too early to tell. Um, I think we have... uh, Statewide, we have an education system that in some places is extremely fragile. And I think it mirrors those places where the economy is extremely fragile. And it mirrors those places where we are seeing um, significant population decline. And as it happens, that is most places outside of Chittenden County. Mm -hmm. And so um, when you have these, remember we were talking about Uh, per pupil spending. So you're penalized. We look at the statewide average across the state and most of our legislation has looked at penalizing those who are spending more per pupil Mm -hmm. than the statewide average. So as you're losing population, a lot of places you're losing it so fast that you're unable to adjust or or you just may not be able to cut enough and still have a viable school. Mm -hmm. Your per pupil spending is going up. Um, your taxes are going up. Your economy's already uh, in trouble. Um, and also, I think it's really important to highlight local control means the locals are in control. And so the uh, the experience, the knowledge about education law, um, those things can vary very greatly between communities in terms of governance. Um, you know, who, who, um, the values of different boards, you know, Mm -hmm. we were just talking about this, right? And so you can end up with some pretty um, significant pressures, creating inequity for students in the system that is supposed to be um, equitable for our students. So we've kind of reached the flip side of Act 60, where, you know, now we're doing, you know, we're creating inequities uh, Mm -hmm. through the system. And so Act 46, it looks to, it was intended to have folks look at their neighbors rather than a state mandate, look at their neighbors and say, could we do better for our kids if we we thought about this together? Um, And I mean, that's how I think about the economy, et cetera. Local control is important. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, that's that's a huge region why people come to Vermont. You know, I mean, you can have such a you have so much power as an mm-hmm. individual, but um, and in that power, you have so much of an ability to navigate these systems long enough to actually understand them, mm-hmm. wherein you get more power. And so, one of my concerns about Act Forty Six is that, as, and actually, I would say that this concern started started with Act Sixty. Essentially, there was a significant loss of local control with Act 60 that was not acknowledged in my experience. 
Oh. Uh, in my experience. <laughs> so Olga yes. and I have spent no, yes. some time yeah. out in the Deerfield Valley. Yes. <laughs> it was acknowledged. I'm sure. Out there. Yes. In, <laughs> yeah. The, yeah, in, my, in my non-gold town life. In my, were, my brass were, town life. There were barricades in the street. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so that loss <laughs> of local control that really started with Act 60 meant that less and less people understand how the education financing system works and so are less able to make change within it, sure. right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, looking at Act 46 right now, um, no, I don't think that it has transformed. But um, how do we stabilize? Uh, you know, I, I ran one of the big parts of my platform when I ran for office was to prevent Act, uh, or Act 46 from happening. Mm-hmm. You know, to pre- prevent forced consolidation. I used to tell people, I will be dead on the hill before you shut down the school in our town. Like, it's not happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I became convinced during the debate and in talking with, um, you know, a number of folks and looking at the data and my other work that we were in a really perilous situation in much of Vermont in terms of population loss. And so how could we, um, while maintaining a lot of local control, um, create some additional stability in mm-hmm. that system? So now, for instance, this River Valley's board that I'm on, uh, you know, our board thinks about the kids in Wardsboro and Dover. And we have very interesting discussions about not having cookie cutter, um, you know, not having the same experience and whether or not that's required and how to have differences. But we also have to think and we keep charging our administrators, you know, come back and tell us, you know, how are you ensuring equity in this budget that you're building? One of the things I've been really interested in through this Act 46 project, and I was not in the legislature when it was voted on. Yes. Um, grateful innocent. for that innocent i am yes. it, was, it was it is quite a privilege to be innocent through this process yes. um but in my work with the school district before that i am very aware of how much joint governance from the superintendent down happened within what is now the wyndham southeast supervisory district when it was a union so so much of that um sort of shared policy, collaboration, et cetera, was happening under the supervisory union and will continue to happen under the supervisory district. But where I think we, I used to say where I think we lost an opportunity, but I think where we haven't, now I think it's where we have an opportunity in front of us is to really figure out, well, okay, so now you know the elected bodies that are governing this are different now participation needs to look a little bit different um now that funding is sort of spread around a larger geographic area what does it look like for us to really wrestle with those issues with the participation issues so that people are having meaningful participation in these smaller communities that have very different needs yeah Um, and that everyone's getting their voices in the room and so again that's not really a funding issue that is a participation governance issue and that's what we need to be solving which and it's a shame to me that whenever we talk about act 46 we wind up stuck in this finance conversation because that's actually in some ways irrelevant to what people are upset about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i so i mean i think the participation i worry about the participation level yeah 
You know, I mean, I see it. So, you know, in the town that I live in and the, on the board that I was on, you know, in the Dover School Board, you know, we wouldn't actually have tremendous participation at our meetings because, you know, we had some longstanding board members. People basically knew what we did. If we get a lot of people there, we knew we had a big problem. Yeah. I mean, and a lot of people <laughs> might be, you know, like three but they were all angry. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you know, and now with our joint meetings, we actually don't, we, you know, we'll have one, maybe, maybe two people that will come. And so, you know, I mean, I haven't seen a tremendous drop off in, in my personal experience there, but I do think that it feels to people that it's become, you know, one level more to reach through to make an impact, have your voice heard. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think, we have to make a lot of effort to make sure that people understand they still, their voice is still important. Mm-hmm. You can still rabble rouse. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, with two towns, not one. <laughs> before so, we, I want to make sure that we cover Medicaid before we I was just gonna turn into ghosts. That, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. And, and because we started a little late and no one's coming after us, we can, we can go a little past three. Okay, cool. Okay. Yeah. So Medicaid is not just the health insurance program that people carry around a card for and use Mm -hmm. to go to the doctor. Mm -hmm. There's also all of these other parts of Medicaid that my understanding is help support a lot of school spending Mm -hmm. are really like in some ways have mandates to them and other ways really sort of insulate the budget. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Uh, that. It would be a very little bit. So, I mean, it's really not my deep area, but yes, uh, there, there is a significant amount of Medicaid spending that goes into the schools. Um, I would tell you that I see um, some cost shifts going on in the schools Mm -hmm. where we are seeing a lot more um, uh, services provided for a much needier population. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in the schools, and so that is um, that is an impact on property taxes. You know, I mean, was that what we meant that we wanted the education fund to do? Is that mm-hmm. our intention? Uh, is a question. You know, I mean, clearly those funds are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we definitely have seen some. Um, I was going to go off on a tangent, Emily. It's, you know, we've seen some other uh, urges at the state level, you know, to do shift other things on the property tax, mm. uh, you know, like additional spending for college. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about, you know, child care mm-hmm. coming into the education system, you know, which mm-hmm. for me, until we get the ed- equity issue um, solved is a no go. But so. Medicaid. I'm nodding, but you can't yeah. hear me <laughs> about <laughs> sort of, there's You're a lot of conversations out. about just sort of this, you know, yes. birth to yeah. birth yeah. to post-college education I, experience, which makes sense, but that doesn't mean it makes yeah. sense to do it from this particular funding stream. Well, right. so, and, and it may. It might. But it's. We would but, need to grow the funding stream well, in, an, in a reasonable do. way to do that. We don't have good measures of equity mm-hmm. in this system. Yes. And it's inherently hard to do that with local control, A. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way the system is set up um, and B with the student weights, which hopefully we're going to see a fix. You know, you can get a lot better around um, around equity, you know, if you have a state run system. So <laughs> it's a good so, thing the phone's not of, working right now. So, <laughs> and that sort of points to one of the interesting things about education spending and education finance is that we're driven by so many different values that are often in. Um, dissonance with each other. Mm-hmm. So there's this deep desire of Vermonters to invest in education, to have good, meaningful, global level education for their children, for their neighbors, for their families. 
there is this core value around schools are community centers and should be invested in not just financially but humanly and so that's where the participation angle comes in also not a word humanly or maybe it is but that was a ridiculous context for it i think not that pronunciation humanely humanely oh that means something different though yeah so but sort of the social capital of the schools Mm -hmm. is really important to communities and that communities are community members are paying attention to their schools are being involved in the governance of their schools. So there's this local control, which is really about local investment, local social investment. There's this value on education and really good quality schools. There's this equity, which is equity of opportunity, but it's also, there's a really core value in Vermont around equity of spending. Mm -hmm. And then there's this idea that we all really like want to be able to meet ends meet. And so many of us can't that sort of tugs. And then there's the accountability piece, which I love. And like, it's really hard to get good data and good results when you have no control. Yeah. And so the agency of education, like can barely even mandate a training. And so what does that, what does that look like? I mean, we lauded the um, ethnic studies bill and I think it was a great step forward, but essentially we just created a committee that can create advice and model curriculums. It's not, there's nothing actually mandatory well, in there. It's a, it's step. a step. It's an amazing step. Yeah. It's a beautiful step. But if we're talking about accountability and data collection, then yeah. yeah. So, so we have about five minutes left. What, what do you think right now is really crucial for either people to understand? Like, are there misconceptions people need to let go of? Are there things that we really need to talk to our lawmakers about changing? What is really key right here, right now? On education? On education. So from my perspective, um, our rural communities have not gone far enough. They have not thought big enough, um, and they have not looked wide enough for collaboration um, to shore up and ensure that we can um, continue to provide and have um, vital uh, you know uh, schools with vitality in mm-hmm. the rural parts of Vermont um, we need to we need to keep going and people are tired and I get it and there's no no support mm-hmm. at the state level but to keep those schools we have to keep talking more to our neighbors and keep trying and and what would what do you think thinking big would look like so you know I mean I think there are opportunities out uh, out in the valley, I think there are opportunities to look at uh, regionalizing middle schools so that we can keep some strong, um, smaller elementary schools. Um, I think there are opportunities to look at, um, you know, bigger pictures around transportation. I know folks are looking at that. Um, you know, collaboration with high schools, collaboration amongst supervisory unions. Um, again, kind of removing, uh, well providing some more stability to mm-hmm. systems that are really fragile. So Okay. Thank you, Laura. Emily. I am really interested in constituents thinking about these competing values mm-hmm. and how they want them to play out. Which ones feel primary to people, which ones feel secondary. I very much love cake. I want to eat it. Um and we all, you know, want our cake and to eat it too, but it doesn't 
that doesn't always work in a policy context. So we have levers that we can pull here, but we want to make sure that we're pulling the ones that are really going to meet the core values that Vermonters are asking us and that we know will be the best investment in the future of vibrant communities where everyone can thrive. And so I want to make sure that as we're doing that, we're being careful about what the effects implications are and we're going into that in a clear-headed way. Mm-hmm. I also want to make sure that everyone remembers that property taxes have income sensitivity. Yes. If you're a resident, not if you're a business. <laughs> yes. Or a landlord. Indeed. <laughs> well, Representative Laura Sebelia, thank you so much for joining us today. As always, Representative Emily Kornheiser, thank you for being here. This show will be podcasted and online later today at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page. You can also find us at the Vermontitude Facebook page. And I just found out that if you go to RadioFreeAmerica.com, you can also find a podcast of this show. So woohoo! In the meantime, Laura, if people want to get in touch with you, or if they have any questions, how should they do that? Laura Sibilia, VT. Dot com. <laughs> you had to think of it. I did, I did. It's three I's and one A. And Laura actually puts out a really great newsletter to uh, anyone who's on her mailing list. I highly recommend you check that out because it's got some good information, especially around broadband. Yes. And rural communities. passion. Emily, how can people find you if they have questions? EmilyKornheiser.org. Emily Kornheiser on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Or you can just stop me in the street anytime you want. And I'm your host, Olga Peters. You can drop me a line at the Vermontitude SoundCloud page or Facebook page. And I want to give a huge shout out to our podcast listeners. I was going through the stats the other day, and we have some real stalwart listeners like Ron from Tennessee, who I think has listened to every single episode we have done. I want to thank you for that, Ron. And we have some folks from the Netherlands listening in, and we have some folks from New York City, as well as Brattleboro and Vermont. So how cool is that? Someone Ron, is, Ron, is give awesome. us a ring. We want to know who you are. He even comments. Even he has even commented. Oh. And he's pretty awesome. Nice. And in oh. full disclosure, he's also a cousin. But oh. <laughs> <laughs> my only family. I should have gone deeper. <laughs> but I'm grateful. <laughs> Hello, Ron. <laughs> so we will be back next week, and we will be talking more money. Mm-hmm. But I don't remember what. And my we calendar's are not talking good. to um, about taxes and progressive taxation. That's right. Yes. With, with the Public Assets Indeed, Institute. Indeed, with Public Assets. Stephanie Yu from the Public Assets mm-hmm. Institute. So stay tuned, everyone. And we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.